Mark chapter 2, verse 23 through chapter 3, 6. Uh, call it a coincidence. Um, call it uh, uh, providence. Uh, it's just appropriate that on a three-day weekend, we are talking about Sabbath and rest. Uh, and so that's the, the theme of our text today. So Mark chapter 2, verse 23. One Sabbath... He was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out immediately and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the gift of rest. Thank you that though you made the world in six days, on the seventh day, you rested and you invited your people into that rest with you. God, thank you that in Christ we have our rest. God, thank you that because of what you have done, we don't need to earn anything. Lord, you are our provider In you, our identity is sure. We don't have to prove ourselves to you, to ourselves, to um, to anybody else, Lord. I pray that today, even now, God, that we would just experience your rest. Not just calm, not just comfort, but true and sustainable rest that all we do would come from a place of resting in you. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my wife, Katie, is an incredibly crafty person. It is, she likes making things, not that she's mischievous. Uh, she, all things DIY, the Pinterest queen. Um, she loves creating. She loves making things. She's really good at it. And so several years ago, she accidentally started a company. See, we were early on in our marriage, Uh, our oldest son was turning about a year old. We couldn't afford shoes for him. And his feet were so chunky that the only hand-me-down shoes that would fit him were hard-soled shoes. And we're like, no, we just want him in soft shoes. We want him to be able to walk around freely. And so she took a pair of my old jeans and she cut them up uh, with my permission. And she made uh, she made shoes for our son. And so her friends started noticing them and going like, oh, those are so cute. Would you make would you make my kid a pair? And yeah, sure. You know, she made him a pair. And it became this thing that in a time in our life where we didn't have much money, we were actually able to give 
shoes to people who were throwing baby showers. And we felt like we had something. It was this blessing to us to bless other people. And then eventually so many people started asking for them that she had to turn them down. And they said, well, we'll pay you for them. I'll pay you to make them. And so, okay, she started making them and, and selling them to friends. And then someone convinced her to start a website and go on to Instagram. And, and for several years, she, she went from being crafty to like, like she was a cobbler. She, 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 for seven years, she, she raised three kids and made shoes for a living. And what was exciting for a while, slowly became less exciting. What began as a, as a passion became an obligation. What was once life-giving was now stressful and burdensome when she had employees and manufacturers and all of these other th- management stuff. And it became this burden. Something happened to turn a blessing into a burden. Oftentimes, we can experience that. Think of, think of getting a new puppy, What began as a blessing (laughs) has become a burden. See, God gave his people an incredible gift called Sabbath. Exodus 20 verses 8 through 10 says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work. The Sabbath was this gift to God's people. A day of rest to uh, rest from work and a day to rely on God for everything that they needed. It wasn't, uh, it was this gift, but it wasn't just something that the people could take or leave as they pleased. God commanded them to rest. God commanded them to observe the Sabbath every week. And so the Sabbath began at sundown on Friday night and continued until sundown on Saturday night. And the people were to do no work during that time. But it was more than just a day off. It was more than just a day to sit around and, 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 and not go to their jobs. It was an intentional time to rest in God as their creator and to rest in God as their provider. And so failure to observe the Sabbath came with severe consequences came with punishment. And so uh, it is true that one of the reasons the Israelites were sent into exile was their corporate failure to keep the Sabbath. And so when they returned from exile and they were vowing to never allow something like that to happen again, they took Sabbath observance very seriously. And so in the tradition of the Pharisees, strict observance to the Sabbath became the pinnacle of what it meant to be a law keeper. It became the pinnacle of what it meant to observe God's law. But it was very difficult for the people to abstain from work if there was no clear description about what work is. And so over the centuries, the Pharisees were able to come up with 39 different categories of work, all of which had subsets to those categories and were all forbidden on the Sabbath. So give you an idea. There is even laws in their oral tradition about how far one may throw a ball on the Sabbath. Play had become work. 
They even had criteria for someone who threw a ball beyond the legal distance, but before it was able to cross that distance, it was caught by a dog or incinerated by fire. They thought of everything, all of the ways that it was possible to to keep holy the Sabbath and to not work on the Sabbath. Keeping the Sabbath was no longer focused on their relationship with God, though. It was this lifeless obedience. Rest had become work. It was hard work to keep the Sabbath. And so in our passage, the Pharisees accused Jesus of violating the Sabbath. But the irony is that the traditions of the Pharisees had been violating the Sabbath for centuries by making it a burden instead of a blessing. And so Jesus is here to restore it to its proper place in the lives of God's people. And so these two stories in our text are independent encounters between Jesus and the Pharisees and their Sabbath traditions. In the first encounter, the Pharisees accuse Jesus of violating the Sabbath because his disciples are plucking grain. That was categorized in the 39 categories as reaping, and that was unlawful on the Sabbath. And in the second episode, they're upset that Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. This too is defined as work. And so Jesus' justification for both of his actions comes between the two accusations. He makes a two-part statement. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That's the first part. And then he says the Lord, uh, that he is Lord of the Sabbath. So we're going to look at actually the second part of this two-part statement first, and then we're going to go back to the first part. So Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. What does that even mean? The Pharisees have taken it upon themselves to be the Sabbath police, which I think is interesting because they also are supposed to be resting and yet they're following Jesus into random grain fields waiting for him to do something. I picture it like this. Jesus and the disciples, it's a beautiful Sabbath day, Saturday afternoon. It's probably springtime because the the grain was ripe. They're, 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 They're walking through the grain fields and one of the disciples reaches out, probably Peter, reaches over, grabs some grain, begins to eat it. And then the Pharisees like heads and beards just like pop up (laughs) from the grain field. And they're like, you, we've been watching you. And so they accuse Jesus. They, They say, why are your disciples doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And so Jesus' response is really interesting. This is a fascinating, fascinating response by Jesus. He could have corrected their legalistic understanding of the Sabbath. He could have done that as he does at times in the gospels. He'll say, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, your, your, your understanding of the scriptures is wrong. Go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He could have corrected their legalistic understanding of the scriptures, but he takes a different approach. Instead, he cites an obscure passage from the life of King David. Now this text is tricky for a couple of reasons. First, Jesus refers to the priest in this story as Abiathar. But if you turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 21, the priest's name is Ahimelech, which is actually Abiathar's father. And so some have seen in this text either a a, a textual error in the, the, the scribes that they actually wrote the wrong name or that Jesus is misquoting scripture. So what is it? Is it the text wrong or is Jesus wrong? 
Well, it's actually neither. See, in Jesus' day, they didn't organize the Bible in chapter and verse. You couldn't say, Jesus couldn't say, haven't you read in, in King David in 1 Samuel 21? Like they, didn't ha- they didn't have that. It wasn't organized that way. Rather, sections of scripture were identified by the major characters in the story. And so since David is the major character and Jesus wants to refer to the priest, he refers to the high priest that had more of a substantial role in the grander story of King David. So he refers to Abiathar because Abiathar had a much more significant role in the story of David. And so uh, Jesus is referring to a section of scripture. He's saying, haven't you heard in what David did during the t- like this time of Abiathar's influence in David's life? So that's one reason that this text is tricky. The other reason it's tricky is because Jesus points to a time in David's life when David was guilty of violating the law. See, there's nothing in the law that says you can't pluck heads of grain. There is absolutely something in the law that says only the priests are allowed to eat the bread of the presence. So David's justification, or sorry, Jesus' justification for their accusation that he's violating the law is, don't you remember when David violated the law? What, what, in, the, what in the world is Jesus doing here? David is never condemned in scripture for what he does in this passage. The priest that he asks to to give him the bread never condemns him. Scripture never condemns him. Never even subtly condemns him. Never is David condemned for this wrong. It would seem that the implication is that David, as the anointed king of Israel, had some authority to act in this way without condemnation. We see something similar in Matthew's account of this same grain incident. Matthew 12, verse 5 through 6, Jesus says, Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you something greater than the temple is here. There are responsibilities that the priests had on the Sabbath. They had to do their job on the Sabbath. The priests had to work on the Sabbath. They had some authority in their role to violate the Sabbath and not be held uh, held guilty. In in their authority, they had the authority to, to do this and they're innocent. And so the justified response of the Pharisees is to ask Jesus, so are you comparing yourself to the anointed king of Israel? Yeah, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He is, he's comparing himself to David. It would appear that Jesus is actually conceding to the accusation. We need to be really careful with this because we know that Jesus fulfilled the law. He obeyed the law completely, right? But it would appear that he is conceding to their accusation for the sake of argument. But then he says that even if he was in violation of the law, even if it was as they said, as David was, he is saying that he has at least the same authority as David to do so. And so if there's any confusion on the part of the Pharisees, Jesus takes it a step further and he says, in fact, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus' relationship to the Sabbath is not as one who submits to the Sabbath, but the Sabbath submits to Jesus. 
the only one who could possibly make this claim is God himself. He's the only one who can make that claim. The only one greater than the law is the one who gave the law. God sits in authority over the law. The, the, the law, God doesn't serve the law. The law serves God. Jesus doesn't submit to the Sabbath. The Sabbath submits to Jesus. He is greater than the law. Something greater than the law is here. Because he gave the law, because the law is fulfilled in him and by him, and so he has the sole right to interpret the demands of the law. See, it's very popular today for people to define right and wrong for themselves. We want to choose for ourselves what's right. We want to choose for ourselves what's wrong. But this leads people many times to affirm things that Jesus has rejected and reject things that Jesus has affirmed. And so God's law shows us the way that life works best. God's law is for our own good. Jesus doesn't get a kick out of keeping good things from us. He wants the best for us. And so the limitations that God's law provides are not these, they don't restrict freedom, they promote freedom. We talked about boundaries a few weeks ago, like the walls of a house that that, that don't, that don't contain the family, but they keep the family safe. And within those boundaries of the walls, there's freedom and there's joy and there's safety. And so like a train that goes off the tracks, shirking the goodness in God's boundaries will only end in destruction. God's law is good. And so by removing boundaries and giving ourselves whatever we want, we're actually limiting ourselves by re- uh, limiting ourselves from receiving the good things that God has for us. Many people want to come to Jesus and ask Jesus to affirm their way of life. Jesus, you need, if you love me, you're going to affirm me. If you love me, you're going to approve of me. If you love me, you're going to let me do this because it makes me happy and you want me to be happy. Many people are trying to force Jesus to fit into our lives and our dreams, trying to come to Jesus on our own terms. And we say things like there's a heart-shaped, uh, Jesus, a God-shaped hole in our heart that only Jesus can fill, which is telling people, you've got all of this good stuff in your life, but there's one empty thing and all you need is to add Jesus to your life and then everything will be perfect. But I'm sorry, we need a bigger view of Jesus. There is no God-shaped hole in your heart. Our entire hearts need to be undone, unhinged, pulled apart and reintegrated around the person and work of Jesus. Jesus is not a part of your story. You're a part of his. God is, Jesus is bigger than the law. He's bigger than our hearts. He's bigger than anything we could possibly imagine. No matter who you are, where you're from, what you believe, Jesus, whether you've been following Jesus for your entire life, I guarantee you he's better than you've been told. He's bigger than you've been told. He's greater than you've been told. He is far more beautiful than you've been told. We need a bigger view of Jesus. Jesus is greater than the law. And so Sabbath law had been, had been corrupted by centuries of man-made regulations. And so Jesus is taking back the Sabbath and, and, and restoring it to its intended purpose. And so this brings us to the first part of his two-part statement. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made to be a blessing for humans. 
It was made to be a blessing for humanity. Humans weren't made to serve the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given to the humans to bless them. It was a gift to God's people. One day a week when the people remembered that God is their creator and provider. And even though they're not working, God feeds them. He clothes them. He cares for their needs because he loves them. It was a reminder that they were no longer slaves in Egypt, reduced to a piece of machinery. It was a reminder that they were human beings created to be with God, not human doings created to work for God. But through all of these man-made rules and regulations, they lost that. And so Jesus challenges the traditions of the Pharisees in the second encounter with them in the synagogue. There's a man with a withered hand possibly due to a, uh, whether it was, a, it was something that happened before birth or a disease like polio or something similar. He's got a hand that doesn't work. It's shriveled and, and, and a withered hand. And the Pharisees are, again, they're literally watching to see what he would do. So they're watching to see if they could accuse him. They're spying. They're, 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 they're waiting, just looking for opportunities to say, sinner. And so he calls the man near. Jesus does, and he asks the Pharisees a question. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath, to heal, or to kill? And the Pharisees don't respond because they're silent. Uh, they're, they're silent because they don't, they don't believe it's, it's lawful to do anything on the Sabbath. Not, neither of those things. In fact, there was uh, rules about uh, medicine and, and, and doctors and, and healing and things like that. You were allowed to save a person's life on the Sabbath if what they were involved in was life-threatening. And so apparently this man should have come back the next day, lived with this ailment for who knows how long, and now was not the time. He should have come back the next day. And so Jesus gets angry because their hearts are so hard that they would deny a man his hand for the sake of their own traditions. And so Jesus, in his compassion, restores the man and not only restores him, but restores the Sabbath back to God's people. It had been held hostage for centuries and Jesus restores it. But he doesn't just restore the Sabbath to its original legal requirements. Jesus expands our understanding of the Sabbath by declaring himself Lord of it. Think of it like this. If you have a smartphone, then chances are your phone is significantly more capable than the software allows. It's, it's, it has significantly more potential than the software actually lets it, it function in. And so by downloading new software, you can actually expand the, what your phone is able to do. Sometimes this is called jailbreaking. Are you guys familiar with the term jailbreaking your phone? It takes a, a phone that's been limited by the software and expands it to reach its fullest potential. And so God gave the Sabbath to the people as a gift. It was already an incredible opportunity to to receive rest and restoration on a weekly basis. But the software, so to speak, has been corrupted. And the people have been restricted from enjoying it in its fullest sense. And so Jesus didn't come to return the Sabbath to its original factory settings. He jailbreaks the Sabbath and expands our understanding of it and gives us opportunity to celebrate rest outside 
outside of the legal 24-hour requirement and in relationship with Jesus. He blows the doors off the Sabbath and invites the people in. He doesn't pour new wine into old wineskins. Remember, he doesn't say, hey, now that I'm here, now you can really keep that 24-hour period of rest, obey the law, do what the Pharisees said. No, he busts it open and says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. If you have me, you have something greater than a 24-hour period of time. And he allows the people to, res- uh, to return to rest. He made all of God's intentions for the Sabbath available in himself. He is our Sabbath. Jesus is our rest. And so as Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus makes rest and refreshment and and restoration available, not just in a 24-hour period, but in himself. But we need to understand this properly. Because what this doesn't mean is Jesus fulfilled the law. Jesus is my Sabbath. Therefore, I don't have to rest. I don't have to keep the Sabbath because Jesus kept it for me. But that's only thinking of it in terms of the legal obedience. That's thinking of Sabbath like a Pharisee. We don't want to do that. We don't want to think about Sabbath like, well, no, I can work on Sunday because Jesus fulfilled the law. And so now I'm free from legal requirements. I don't have to have a Sabbath because Jesus fulfilled the law. And while you're not going to be condemned for it, yes, because Jesus died for your sins and fulfilled the law on your behalf. If you were in a situation where you could only eat once a week and you are forced to eat in that time, and then someone comes and sets you free, your response isn't going to be, I guess I don't have to eat anymore. We wouldn't do that. You eat all the time. And so now this opportunity for rest is not just confined to this 24-hour period. And yet, as Christians, the church often responds by, guess I don't need to rest anymore. No, it's this gift that we can experience constantly, perpetually in our intimacy with Jesus. And so Jesus is our rest. Yes, absolutely. Amen. But this doesn't mean that we now get to fill our lives with busyness and ignore God's command. We must rest. We must be a people of rest. But how? Rest is elusive. Rest is difficult to find. How do we access the rest that is available in Christ? Well, first and foremost, as the disciples are doing in this passage, we walk with him. The passage opens with the disciples taking a stroll with Jesus through a field of wheat. It's the Sabbath. They're they're, they're focused on rest. They're with a man that has incomparable wisdom and power. And they're just learning about the kingdom of God. And they're resting and, and, and enjoying the day. And so many of us know this already. But it has to be stated that if you want to experience true rest, you must be walking with Jesus, plain and simple. Now, Walking with Jesus is, is a metaphor for discipleship. Following Jesus, being with him, learning from him, becoming like him, spending time regularly with him in scripture and in prayer by applying the gospel to our life and responding in faith and obedience. Unless we're walking with Jesus, unless we are disciples of Jesus, not just learning about him, but being with him, then Sabbath rest will always evade you. You will never find it. You will never find rest unless you are resting in Jesus. In addition, We have to learn 
how to invite Jesus into the things that we enjoy. So we, rec- we love recreation. We love adventure. We love nature. We, we, we love uh, spending time not working. That's like a good thing. But unless we're inviting Jesus into that place with us, acknowledging his presence with us in those places, then recreation is good, but it's still not restful. It's going to be, many of us are going to experience this on Tuesday, right? We have a long weekend, And on Tuesday, many of us are going to wake up just as tired as we were on Friday because we're not actually resting. We're just filling our spare time with the busyness of activities and recreation and yeah, fun, family, friends, all of these things. But if we leave Jesus just in this time together as a church and he's not with us in those activities, we're not recognizing how he's a part of that, then we're not actually resting in him. We're actually now trying to find our rest in activities. And it doesn't work that way. We just trade our busyness in the office or our busyness at work for busyness in recreation. And it's not actually restful. So I want to give just some tips on how to cultivate rhythms of rest in our lives. First is that there is no convenient time for rest. If you're only looking for time to rest, you'll never find it. You got to make it. You've got to make time for rest. It's not about convenience. It's about necessity. There's always going to be urgent things that demand our time. And if we wait until we come to a stopping point in life, we're never going to find it before death. It's not going to happen. Death is the, ulti- is the only stopping point in life. We need to make time for rest. So plan a time in your schedule regularly. Honestly, this is a beautiful gift that God has given you. Plan some time in your schedule daily, weekly to rest. Put it on your calendar. When a friend calls you up and says, hey, what are you doing this day at this time? You say, sorry, I'm busy. Or you actually, you're not. <laughs> sorry. I'm intentionally not busy at that time. I'm resting. Hold to it. That's going to mean we got to press into that fear of missing out, right? That, that, that fear that something is going to happen in the world with my friends and I'm not going to be a part of it. And if I'm not a part of it, then who am I? You got to press into that. You're with Jesus. Your identity is in Christ. Trust him for that. We have to make time and we need to rest when it's time to rest. This can look different for everybody. Um, Though Jesus has freed us from the legal requirement of a 24-hour period of time, I do think that there is something beautiful and valuable in the way the Jewish people celebrated the Sabbath. Sundown on Friday night to sundown on Saturday night. There's something beautiful about starting the day before, right? And, 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 and getting your mind right and going to bed at a decent time, and waking up rested, and planning that day to be a day of rest, to look at the things, the urgent things. These things must get done, and intentionally say, I will do them in two days. I will, I will get to it, but not not this day. And then plan time to spend time alone with Jesus, with your family, with friends. Do something that you enjoy. Do something that's life-giving. Do something that, that, that invests into you, but do it with Jesus. And just use that time intentionally. This means that rest is going to require sacrifice and trust. 
Some of us, it means we're going to have to sacrifice finances because if you're not working that day, you're not going to make any money that day. And so we're going to have to trust God to provide. That's true. But for others of us, we're going to have to trust God for our identities that when our friends are doing something or uh, there's, there's, uh, or there's, you know, we need to go to the grocery store, like whatever it, whatever it is, we need to trust that God is going to provide, that God is going to protect. We need to trust God for our identities, that my identity is not in my recreational activities, my vacations, my toys, my whatever it is. My identity is in Christ. And so I don't need to busy myself with those things. I can trust that joy is in him and not in the things that I'm doing. And so it's going to require that we trust God to provide. It's going to require that we trust God to, uh, to, to be for our identities, to be in him. It means we're going to have to sacrifice pride. It means a variety of things, sacrificing our opportunities, but it requires that we trust God for joy, for identity, for provision. Sabbath is not just about not working. It's about trusting God for all things. Now this is impossible apart from Jesus. And so we have a choice. There are uh, two responses to Jesus in this passage. After Jesus poses the question of the legality of saving life or killing life on the Sabbath, he he invites the man with the withered hand to, to, to stretch out his hand. And he does, and it's restored. Now, people with physical deformities in this era were considered unclean. And someone who was unclean was unable to fulfill the law, to perfectly obey the law. And so Jesus asks this man with a withered hand, the, the, very, the very source of his uncleanness, the very heartbeat of his vulnerability, and says, stretch it out for everyone to see. Take, take this thing that has been a, a, a burden, a source of shame, a source of fear, a source of guilt, a source of separation from God and stretch it out for all to see in the synagogue. In this act of faith, this act of courage, he stretches it out and his hand is restored. So what's the center of your vulnerability? What's, what's the heartbeat of your shame? What's the thing in your life that the enemy or even your own conscience continues to preach to you unclean, unclean, unworthy, separated from God, guilty, condemned? What, what, what is that thing? What, what sin, what shame are you hiding? What, what areas of your life are you holding back from others and holding back from Jesus? Because as long as you remain in hiding, rest will be hidden from you. You will not rest if you are hiding your vulnerability, your shame, your sin from Jesus and from the body of Christ. When David was hiding his sin, he says in Psalm 32, 3, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. There is no rest in unrepentance. Peter, when he preaches the gospel in Acts chapter 2, they say, what must we do to be saved? And Peter says, repent so that times of refreshing may come. If there's something in your life, something that you're thinking about right now, 
believe that the Holy Spirit is just leading in this time and bringing to mind the things that are in our life that are the source of our vulnerability, the source of our shame, the things that we feel that we are separated from God because of, condemned because of, that thing. Unless you repent, rest will be hidden from you. Repent so that times of refreshing may come. The enemy is telling you right now that I don't understand. I don't understand what you're going, I don't, I can't say that. He doesn't know what you've done. You're going to stretch out your hand and it's going to get lopped off because no one will trust you. No one will believe you. No one will forgive you. No one will understand. That is a lie from the pit of hell. If you stretch out your hand in faith and reach on to Jesus for grace in whatever that is, times of refreshing will come. Not condemnation, not fear, not the the fiery torment of hell, refreshing, living water, pouring out abundantly from the throne of grace to satisfy your longing. The longing that you have is for Jesus. If the man who is healed represents the heart of faith and the heart of unrepentance is is demonstrated by the Pharisees who upon watching Jesus bring the power of God into the life of a broken man immediately run and conspire on how to kill him. See, unrepentance is ultimately a rejection of Jesus. Unrepentance is ultimately, will ultimately lead you to rejecting Jesus. You might be here right now and say, that's a lie. I believe in Jesus, but you're living in unrepentance and that will ultimately lead you to rejecting Jesus. You're at least rejecting him as being satisfactory for forgiveness, for grace in this area of your life. You're withholding something from him. Unrepentance ultimately culminates in a rejection of Jesus. And so the Pharisees will eventually be successful in rejecting Jesus. They'll be successful in their plots to kill him. They would see the death of Christ and they would believe that they were doing a great thing for God by killing this Sabbath breaker. He must die. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or or to kill? They plot to kill. Jesus does something good and they plot to do something evil on the Sabbath. But when Christ died on the cross by their hands, his blood was poured out for the restoration of all who would believe. The rest that, 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 that is only found in, in, rest is only found in trusting the finished work of Jesus. That when he was on the cross, he said, it is finished. Atonement for that sin that we're hanging on to has been made once and for all. The primary reason that we can rest is because the law and all of its requirements have been fulfilled in Jesus and his righteousness has been credited to us. So we can stop working for God's approval. So we don't just work for money. We don't just work for our identity. We're Christians. We work so God will love us. That's a lie. Just in case you didn't know. We don't work to be accepted by God. We're accepted by God. And so we pour out our lives to him, for him, serving him. We don't serve to be accepted. We are accepted and therefore we serve. We don't have to prove ourselves to God. He accepts us in Christ. It's finished. There's no accusation that anyone can bring against you. 
everything you've ever done or will do that could be reason to accuse you of violating God's law has been nailed to the cross. He has received the penalty that it deserves. And if you stretch out your hand, Jesus will restore you to himself. Restoration will not come by your own efforts. Rest will not come by your own effort. It will come by, it's not going to come by filling your life with recreation. It's not going to come by finally accomplishing your goals and kicking your feet up. It's not going to come through planning the perfect vacation or taking a day off. Your rest will come when you understand that your value and worth does not come from what you do or what you have. Rest will come when you trust that Jesus is all that you need and that you are valued in Christ. Jesus proved your value to God, that your value to God is far greater than anything that you can do. You are not weighed and measured by your career, your family, your activities, your success and failures, your experiences, your toys, your ministry service. That is not who you are, that your value is not in that. You are far more important to Jesus, far more important to this church, far more important to your family, far more important to your friends than anything you could ever do for them because you're made in the image of God and Jesus willingly poured out the most valuable substance in the universe, the blood of God to purchase you for himself. You are already approved of, you are already accepted. You are already valued and loved if you have trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's only in trusting him that we'll find the rest that our souls long for. A Sabbath isn't just a day when you don't go to work. It's a day when you stop trying to prove yourself to God and others. It's stop trying to prove that you are enough. Remember that in Christ, all you are and all you have is enough. Because at the end of the day, all we are and all we have is Jesus. And our identity is in him. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so church, we're here. He is here. Christ is here among us by his Holy Spirit. We're not here to prove ourselves. You're not proving anything to anybody by being here. We're here to sit at the feet of Jesus to receive whatever he has for us, to stop proving ourselves and know that he has done all for us to unite us to himself, to give us everything that we need. And so we can open our hands and rest. Today, let's rest. Right now, let's rest as we sing, as we worship, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Let's rest in knowing that the finished work of Christ is just that. It's finished. And it's finished for you. So you have nothing that you need to prove today. And so let's enjoy him and let's rest in him today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we believe that the Sabbath was a gift. We believe that rest is not this requirement, but it is a a gift to your people to be celebrated, not something to be mourned, not something to be feared, not something to be felt guilty over. Lord, I pray that you would help us practically cultivate rhythms of rest in our lives, but you would also help us spiritually to know that our rest is in Christ and we don't have to prove anything on any day of the week. Lord, we don't have anything to prove in our workplaces. 
Lord, you are our provider. We don't have anything to prove among our friends, Lord. You are our, you, you are our true friend. We have a friend in God. Lord, we don't have anything to prove. We don't have anything to accomplish. We don't have anything that we need to do that you don't invite us into by your grace. And so I pray that even our working would come from rest. Even our serving would come from rest. Lord, our praising you, our singing to you would come from rest. When we go home today and maybe get the house ready for a Memorial Day barbecue, that even that working would come from a place of rest. That no matter what we are doing, that our souls would rest in Jesus because it's not confined to a 24-hour period of time, but it's found in you. God, we long for you. We're desperate for you. Pour out that living water and bring rest to our souls. Forgive us of our sins, that thing that separates us from you and unite us to yourself so that we will know that we are no longer enemies of God, fearing you, but that we are friends of God, receiving you graciously, generously, joyfully. Lord, fill this place with rest. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.